If we're going to start doing the ASMR cut of this podcast, <laughs> it's going to be behind a paywall. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Did You Do Your Homework, the pop culture podcast connecting academic ideas to popular media. I am one of your co-hosts, Martha, a librarian and eternal guinea pig wrangler, <laughs> and I'm here as always with my co-hosts. Uh, I'm Pete Romberg, and I am a, I guess I'm a pug wrangler if you're a guinea pig wrangler, uh, and I'm a curriculum developer. Yeah, we have definitely done the Pet Wrangler intro before, but honestly, as I was telling you before we started recording, uh, one of my pigos has been uh, not feeling super great, so that's just been kind of top of my mind recently. Yeah, we had a bunch of people over on Saturday, uh, like for dinner and then just extended hangs. Uh, and when I say a bunch of people, I am talking like 12 people. Ozzy had gone to the, nice. the dog park earlier that day. People started coming over at 6 by 11 p.m., everyone is still there. All, you know, music is on, everyone's talking loud. And he just went into his crate and laid down and gave a serious <gasps> look of like, oh my God, you people need to go home. Uh, he he does. What a good boy. Well, he, if, <laughs> if it's not bedtime, he doesn't like to go in his crate mm -hmm. and lie down. He'll lie down on the couch or any, literally the chair, any surface, not, the, not his crate. But he was like, I'm tired. I want to go to bed. You all are in the room with my crate. <laughs> what, are, what are we doing here? Uh, that's adorable. Yeah. And then uh, Sunday he was dead, so. Oh, well, yeah, because he used up all of his energy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Being social. Uh-huh. Um, and then putting himself to bed. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm going to be thinking about that for quite some time. <laughs> um, today we are going to be talking about robots and the memification thereof and what that says about us and our relationship to technology uh, but before we do that we're going to tell you a little bit about what pop culture wise is stuck in our heads this week what have we been in enjoying or experiencing uh that we cannot stop thinking about pete what is stuck in your head today uh, so it looks like about three months ago now, Nintendo released a remastered version of Metroid Prime. Uh, Metroid Prime was, I think, a 2007. Uh, gonna get this. Oh, no. Oh, no. Uh, I am aging no. rapidly <laughs> right before your very eyes. Uh, it was a 2002 GameCube game, the first first-person shooter Zelda. Uh, Zelda, hello. First first-person shooter Metroid game. Um, and it was an incredible game back in the year 2002. This remaster, which now is apparently 20 years old, uh, is a phenomenal remastering of that original game. It feels like it's, it's your classic, like, I have very fond memories of playing Metroid Prime, but does it actually live up to my memories? This remaster fully lives up to my memories. Um, I downloaded it like a month and a half ago and then basically didn't touch my switch for a month and a half because life got busy uh but the last weekend i've been at like you know last two weekends i've been able to have some time with it and it's been just a phenomenal time to return to that game that i i have such strong positive nostalgic memory for but also it's been 20 years so there are entire sections where i'm like i have no memory of this whatsoever uh, and then other areas where I'm like, yep, this is just drilled directly into my memory. So, 
Yeah, I either am playing my Switch eight hours a day or I am not touching it for weeks on end. There yep. is no in between. So I understand. <laughs> I, I can never do the eight hour. After about two hours, I'm like, all right, I need to do something else. Uh, but... Yeah, my problem is that I really love the this is your life now game experience. Mm, mm, mm-hmm. So um, I I do enjoy the like 100 plus hour JRPG yeah, uh, and, and we've both talked about our love of like the Stardew Valley type. Also, yes, which an update is apparently coming mm. for that. Mm. Um, I don't know how soon it will hit Switch. I, I know it will be on Steam first. Um, but yes, uh, Concerned Ape tweeted about that the other day. He said he was taking a break from working on the Haunted Chocolatier to polish up that update and then he would be back working on his sequel game which i am so excited about (laughs) yes yes indeed (laughs) but yes anyways what is stuck in my head this week is uh top chef i Mm. was an og top chef fan i watched the first seven or eight seasons um it's a it's truly one of my favorite reality shows i love a reality show that is based on talent rather than drama and like Mm -hmm. obviously obviously they are like there is drama and there are storylines and all of that because it's still a tv show but at the end of the day you can either cook or you can't right like you you (laughs) do have to do the job you do have to do the job and i love watching competent people do stuff that they're good at Mm mm-hmm the current season is an all-star season and it is an international all-star season, which is so cool. All of the contestants were winners or runners up for their seasons. And oh. many of the seasons were international. So like top chef, middle East or top chef, Mexico or top chef, France. And it is super, super interesting to watch all of these people who are all extremely talented. Um, compete on the show normally um every normally on an episode of the show there's at least one like utter disaster that <laughs> happens and so far on this season like it truly it's been like the it's been like the back half of a regular season every episode like is is the back half usually like when everyone is is good. firing on all cylinders Yes. Like, like the disasters so usually happen in the first half and then like by the second half everyone is like all right, we are in it. Right. Like the first half is usually weeding out the people who like are not super suited to this format or mm-hmm. who or who are clearly it's kind of separating out the people who are just not as talented as the best people there. Like you have to be good to be on the show. Mm-hmm. But there is typically sort of a hierarchy of like, oh no, these like four to six people are legitimately great. And so the first half of the season is typically like weeding out the people that are just not as good. Right, um, right. And in, yeah, in this season, we're on like episode five or something, and everyone is cooking bangers all the time. <laughs> it's awesome. It also means that I'm always legitimately sad when somebody goes home. Mm-hmm. Like, there's no one on the season that I don't like. There's no one on the season that annoys me. Mm-hmm. And so every time somebody leaves, it's it's like, oh, no, but you were really good. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, that, that sounds very similar uh, to the, the back half of, a, you know, uh, British Bake Show, right? Br- British Bake Off. 
Yeah, I mean, same deal. Yeah, like same you, idea. you right. weed out the people, you weed out the people who aren't good under pressure or are just not as talented or not as creative, and then you know you get down to like the seriously talented people. Mm-hmm. Except in this season, everyone is seriously talented. Right. Right. Um, so yeah, I'm really happy to be back enjoying this. Um, I for a while I was a big reality or a big like dating reality show person. I was big into the bachelor for a long time and Mm -hmm. I just, I lost my taste for it Mm -hmm. (laughs) too much, too much sexual assault too too much, uh, fair gross behavior there. So I am back in my corner. We are going to take a quick recess. And when we come back, we are going to talk about robots, AI and, uh, our societal interpretation of those concepts. I don't have a pithy <laughs> title for this one yet, Pete. We'll we'll see how that goes. And we are back. So the inspiration for this episode, and I think it is important for me to kind of lay out what my journey was to wanting to talk about this and wanting to talk about the two movies in particular, which we we will get to. We haven't introduced them yet. A month or so ago, maybe about two months ago, my director at the library that I work at told me that she wanted me and her to do a an event at the library talking about ChatGPT and AI tools um as they are kind of becoming more ubiquitous and more like being utilized more mm-hmm. uh for by lay people and uh she feels that it's very important for libraries and our library in particular to be a um sort of a a touch point for technological education in our community and i don't necessarily disagree um But also, I have always had to stop and sort of consider whenever people get very panicky about um, the AI tools, I I do always have a bit of a record scratch moment because I, I feel that my reaction to them is a bit disconnected from what many people's are. And I wanted to, because this is how I process things, kind of take a look at that through a pop cultural lens and sort of see if we could track how we got to where we're at in our reactions to and feelings about artificial intelligence. The big thing that bothers me about the discourse around AI right now is this prevailing uh, hysterical thought that, like, these tools are thinking for themselves which they are not doing. <laughs> right. Um, but I, I almost feel like there is an urge to think that they are. The way that I have been thinking about it and the way that I have talked to my parents about it is that it, it basically is a, like something like ChatGPT is basically a much more complex version of when your cell phone tries to predict the word you're going to type next. Mm-hmm. It is not thinking for itself it is making an educated guess based on information that it has already been given right but i i think that they're sorry go ahead i i think one reason that we want to think of them or or that that many people you know default to thinking of them as like thinking for themselves 
is because that's kind of what the creators want them to think. And it's it's how the creators of these, um, you know, AI interfaces want them to interact. Like, like, they want people to be able to input anything and make it seem like a natural response that seems thoughtful and, and all the rest of it comes out. Um, but it's all, like, <laughs> uh, there was some tweet going around of, like, Guys, I wrote, I can think on a piece of paper and I sent it through a photocopier and you'll never believe what came out. We, we must stop yes, this. Exactly. <laughs> <You know? laughs> uh, and and that's, that's really all ChatGPT is. It is an incredibly powerful tool, what we're looking at right now. And it can, like, oh, it, it, is, it is so much further advanced than like Google or uh, Gmail auto predictive text. But also when you get down to more than like one layer of complexity, I've heard a couple things on on podcasts mostly asking it to like generate a script and it, it creates incredibly realistic sounding banal human speech as if it was written by like a first year screenwriter who had never really like where everyone is just talking like banalities of like, oh, yeah, Martha, that's a good point. You know, it's like, like, that's a good point. Also, did you know that uh, AI does not actually think for itself? Like, oh, yeah, no, I agree with you. It's like, yeah, that well, is and, kind and of how humans interact, but not really. And that's the thing also is that, like, I, I definitely understand and I don't want to make light of the very real concerns about people using AI tools in place of human, um, like, in place of human labor. Mm -hmm. Like, I think particularly when you're looking at something like Midjourney, the art-based AI, like... There is a very real danger that people are going to say, oh, that is much cheaper than using a human artist. Yeah. However, I think at this point, you also can't deny that the results that you get from a human artist are superior. Like, I do not think we are at a point yet where what an AI can generate is equal to like a, a, a human creative. No, but for a lot of things, good enough is completely fine. If you're if you're like a DM running a and d game and you're just like, I want some background art for this scene or like, I want a quick NPC character sketch, I'll do like, you know, and I, I don't want to pay an artist. Like, oh, cool. There's a free AI generator out there. Cool. Uh, orc with scar on face. Great. That's my NPC. Well, like, And for sure. And I actually think that that's a really great example of kind of the ideal space for these tools to be operating mm -hmm. is like, if I, as a GM, can use that to free up my brain space for, like, more complex encounters and, like, better interactions with my players, awesome. So I just wanted to kind of lay out that as sort of background for what caused, for what my inspiration was for bringing the topic to the table, which was how pop culture has sort of exacerbated our fear of and willingness to sort of jump to the worst possible the worst possible conclusion uh, when confronted with these AI tools, but also how that fear exists simultaneously with us looking at something like the Boston Robotics dog and being like, oh, look, how cute. And now he's being armed like as a police defense tool yeah no no notes on that <laughs> like, one by the way seems seems real good to give police police uh, armed robot dogs they've, so they've do shown that they can be, be trusted existing, with such power we do seem to be existing in this space where we are both afraid of and assuming that these ai tools are going to supplant humanity and also being very willing to put a face on it and welcome it into our home if it does a cute little dance. 
So we are going to start by discussing the 2001 uh, Steven Spielberg. Um, Parentheses, Stanley Kubrick. <laughs> Stanley Kubrick collaboration, yeah. AI, artificial intelligence, <laughs> um, which I, I will address in just a second. Um, yeah. So AI is the story of AI is about four different stories going on. But the main story is the story of David, who is an android child. Um, who is invented by my boy William Hurt uh, to basically replicate the experience of a um, like eight to ten year old son. Mm-hmm. And Francis O'Connor and Sam Robards' son is currently in a coma, so they take David home, and Francis O'Connor, playing Monica, uh, has David imprint on her as his mother. And the the, um, imp- the important thing with this with with the David bot is that he's been designed to to love like every other robot has is is a deeply complex network of you know thought processes and AI and such but they're all like stimulus response like the first scene is like you know demonstrating like you hurt my arm how did that make you feel well you didn't hurt my feelings you hurt my arm because robots don't think David is designed to feel right so uh, yes. but also has no off. Like his options are zero or one hundred in terms of how he feels yes, about we will, his mommy. <laughs> we will get to that. <laughs> so everything is going great until Monica and Sam Robards' character Henry until their son wakes up out of his coma, uh, which quickly turns into this incompatibility between David's soul focus obsessive focus on monica as his mother coexisting with another boy in the house who does not see him as a person worthy uh well it's very strange and i think that the movie actually gets this very accurate but martin both doesn't see david as a person but also sees him as a threat to his parents affection so like there is a very real like sibling rivalry happening that i enjoyed very much uh so this leads to monica abandoning david in the woods because she thinks that her alternative is them taking him back to the robotics place where he will be destroyed because the imprint process is irreversible um then we meet uh jude law's character who is a sex robot uh the two of them end up in a place where they get picked up by a group of people that organize uh, something called a flesh fair, which is basically uh, Brendan Gleeson destroying robots for fun. Fully forgot Brendan Gleeson was in this movie. So when he showed up, I was like, what? (laughs) Yeah. Clark Gregg is also in this movie. (laughs) Just FYI. Um, But yeah, so they, they destroy uh, robots in a very gladiatorial way. type event for people's entertainment because remember they're robots they're not people well and also like they're taking uh, our jobs so it, it it honestly that scene hit kind of harder in 2023 than it might have in 2001 uh just in the sense yes, of like, mm, look <laughs> we got the reactionaries blowing up the things they don't like and are afraid of cool yes uh so they escape and make their way to the sunken city of Manhattan which we have been told earlier in the movie was uh decimated by climate change all of which culminates in David basically going into stasis at the bottom of the ocean for like 2000 years um 
And then, yeah, he gets woken up in the future by future robots. And I will say the first time I saw this movie, I truly thought they were aliens. Yeah, that, um, a lot, that's a lot apparently. of people's take. A lot of people for the last 30 minutes were like, mm, no, thank you. Did not like the aliens. Yes. Yeah. Um, but so I watched this movie as a young person, and I do not remember thinking very highly of it at all. As an adult watching it, I was very struck by how bleak it is, especially the ending, which I had remembered as being sort of overly saccharine. Like, basically, David gets woken up by these robots 2,000 years in the future, and he gets to spend one last day with Monica, his mother. Like, they have... They are able to bring clones back of people, but only for a day. So he gets like one perfect day and then they both go to sleep forever because David doesn't want to live in a world without his mom. And I believe that this got pretty panned for being like overly, overly saccharine. It it did. But and I... specifically people thought so like this, as, as we sort of said at the top, this was a sort of a, a Kubrick spielberg joint collab kubrick obviously had died before this came out but he had been talking with spielberg and was basically like spielberg spiely as he called him uh you should direct i'll produce you know i've been i've been working on the script i've, I've had rights to the script for 30 40 years i think the tech is there i think you should direct it uh but when the movie came out people were like well obviously the kubrickian ending is him staring at the blue fairy trapped in the boat and that's where it would have ended if it was kubrick but spielberg tacked on this saccharine ending with like the robots no that was all in the original like you know treatment uh given given to spielberg which is fascinating um because i i do I mean, there are parts of this movie that feel very Spielbergian, but apparently those are not the parts that he uh, was in charge of, which I think is fascinating. Yeah. Um, also, I would say that the the flesh fair feels mostly um, it feels mostly like a Ridley Scott <laughs> sequence <laughs> that <Yeah>. got jammed <laughs> into yeah, the lot, lots of um, neon neon bikers, uh, almost Mad Maxy in its in mm -hmm. its vibe. But yeah, so there's a couple of really interesting things happening in this movie. Um, when I went to rate it on Letterboxd, I was like, I don't know how to rate this movie. Because I think each piece of it is about a four-star experience. But when you put them all together, I don't know that it entirely hangs together. It's it's funny. you um, I, I did not read your review before I reviewed it. Uh, you said it in part, it is composed of about four smaller movies. And I said, it's like three different horror movies disguised as a Pinocchio story. So we're both like, yeah, it's three to four separate movies all happening together. But I do think that each one is doing something really, really interesting. Mm -hmm. um, so in the forefront, you have David, who is designed to be like the theory behind him is that he will be a perfect simulacrum of a child. He will love you unconditionally and he will love you obsessively. <laughs> like that is his, that is his directive. And you do kind of want to shake William Hurt and be like, what are you thinking? Because <laughs> giving anything that kind of soul focus, like is pretty dark and then when you're thinking about something that will effectively live forever it's like and never age i don't it's know it's going that, to be a 10 year old boy age. forever 
Well, and I, so yeah, I don't know that you fully thought that through, but then you get to the end where you find out that David is modeled after William Hurt's dead son, David. And you're like, oh, you didn't think this through. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) This was not. So I, I think that that is a very interesting, just sort of, um, slate of events that like the the creator who is laying out this argument as to why this will be something that people want like we hear about um population control and people needing to apply to have children and how an android can like fulfill that need without utilizing resources and like this all feels very logical but then you take one step back and you're like mm, don't know about this like turn turn that unconditional think... love chip down to 80 and maybe maybe you've got something uh give it a, an inset date that... and a, a you know seven-year lifespan or something but then ultimately i do think that's the point like i think we're supposed to recognize that like oh this was not a rational decision mm-hmm. yeah. and maybe and it probably wasn't even a good one like i i don't know that the movie ultimately wants us like we're supposed to love david because he is our point of view character but i'm not sure that the movie wants us to think that his existence is a net positive like i i think that his I, I existence agree. is supposed I've, yeah. to be very very sad yeah it's it's supposed to be like cuz when you think about his existence for one minute it's like this unaging 10-year-old child has an obsessive love for literally one person that such that he will spend 2000 years until he powers down wishing to be a real boy to be back with this person and then all he wants to do is be with her again like that is yes bleak so then and i want you to hold that in your mind for a moment then we have jude law who is a sex robot who, who is, is created to be he is, is what he is so immaculately cast in this movie. He looks like a so robot. Good. He moves like ninety nine percent human, but one percent not. Uh, and he's just so hot. Well, and I would like everyone out there to take note of the very deliberate way that he is styled in this movie, because he is intended to be like a perfect object for female desire. And he's got a very David Bowie thing going on. Mm-hmm. Like this is not this is not a hulking macho man. This is a it's a Jude Law um, type. He's 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 right. a little svelte. He you know he's he's slick slick back has a bit of a, a a dangerous energy to him, which is why he'll never be a leading man properly. Uh, <laughs> you know, like like he's a bit like a shark, right? But he's he's also a little not fey, but certainly not macho. He's got dance um, moves. He does. He is wonderful. Um, I wished that there had been more of him. <laughs> um, but in terms of like fear, so that the prevailing fear in this movie is that robots are coming in to replace humans, which ultimately does happen yes. at the very end of the movie. Um, but I think what we are shown is that when the robots are designed to replace an aspect of humanity, it is not good. Like Mm -hmm. Jude law has to deal with like Jude law goes to visit one of his clients to find that her husband has killed her. Um, and, and he's in bad trouble. Yes. And he's in bad trouble. Um, this, this, these are the chain of events that lead to him being, uh, scooped up for the flesh fair. Um, and 
you know, he, he talks about seducing women with a sort of single-minded purpose. I mean, like, the, um, the, the best example of that is when David is telling him, it's like, I'm looking for the blue fairy. And he's like, who's the blue fairy? Is that is that a robot? Is that a, a human man or woman? He's like, oh, it's a human woman. He's like, ah, I know human women. I know where we can find them. I know human women. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Let's go, um, let's go to Sex I, Vegas. I, That's where you'll find human women. But yeah, I think that what we are ultimately shown is that when he, when the robots are designed to be a a one to one replacement for some aspect of human desire, mm -hmm. when they are created to fulfill that, that it is ultimately tragic for literally everyone involved. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um. I mean. <laughs> That that was kind of what I what I took from it, and also that the the whole thing is sort of a um, an ironic tragedy writ large. Because as I said, at the end we see that due to environmental issues, humanity has been wiped out, and the only quote unquote living creatures left are robots. Yep, yep. We, we uh, which is a classic fear that we've you know uh, developed ourselves out of existence, right? Like we, you know, this this is Matrix, this is Terminator, this is you know. Uh, everything like that of like we've developed a, a technology so advanced that they don't need us anymore ai horror stories tend to be either the oh no we programmed the computer to make paper clips and now it's turning us into paper clips uh or it's the <laughs> we we developed the computer so smart that it realizes that humans are the biggest threat to humans so it's just going to wipe out humans to keep us safe from ourselves you know or the third option, it's so smart, it's like human is our threat to me, the computer, so I gotta deal with it. Well, and I, I love that this movie comes out two years after The Matrix and two years before The Animatrix. It is, it is always so interesting to me to see how movies about the same thing, like borrow and trade mm -hmm. concepts and visuals with each other. And I, I will say this... I think there's... We, we were saying off air, this movie is based on a short story from the set late late sixties, early seventies, but a lot of what you're talking about is definitely sort of the in conversation with the Matrix stuff, uh, like the visuals and all that. Well, and I think that you can, well, maybe not trace a direct line, but like the the seek the scene where the robots are digging in, basically the robot junkyard looking for replacement parts oh, for themselves. Oh, it's so creepy. Reminded me very, very deeply of the segment in the Animatrix when the sex worker robot like has her skin torn off mm -hmm. by people. Is that so is that also just, the it, sequence it, with the um uh like the the Vietnam uh, uh picture of the general shooting the the captive, but it's a robot. Yes. Okay. Cool. Sorry, that that was a very bad way to describe um, that particular yeah. scene seared into my head. <laughs> And it also feels worth mentioning that one of the very first sci-fi movies ever made, Metropolis, which came out in the 1920s, is also about <laughs> a robot taking the place of a person and fulfilling a need and, like, taking over the role of a, of, of a person. So, like... Well, and, and we'll go back even further. The, the very first piece of work with robots in it was a 1920 play... Uh, by a Czech playwright called named uh, Karl Chopek called R-U-R, Rossum's Universal Robots. Uh, the word robot comes from the Slavic word, which means laborer. And in this play, humans have invented a mechanical 
humanoid creature called robots, whom, of course, we oppress, and whom, of course, you know, rise up in rebellion, killing all humans except for one, and, you know, then have a robot utopia, kind of. Uh, it's very, shockingly, with that sort of plot, it's a very Marxist play. <laughs> um, you know, about workers workers rising up, and did it with Metropolis. Um, but the idea of, we've invented mechanical creatures that we abuse un- to the point of them rising up and overthrowing us, is like hardwired into robot stories. Yep. Uh, I would now like to move on to our second piece of literature. Uh, the second movie that I made Pete watch for this episode <laughs> is the 2023 masterpiece, Megan, uh, written by Akila Cooper and James Wan and directed by Gerard Johnston, starring Allison Williams as Gemma, Violet McGraw as Katie, Ron Chiang as David, and Amy Donald as Megan. Uh, this is the movie about... So Allison Williams plays Gemma, who works at a toy company, which is making toys that are sort of like Furbies, but more. The, the idea is that they are pets that won't die, so like they learn and respond to you. And she is... Uh, about to launch the company into the next generation of robotics with her uh, android, Megan, who is designed to be the perfect bestie to uh, the child that you buy her for. Um, The big difference between Megan and AI is that Megan's got murder on the brain. (laughs) And if you threaten... (laughs) If you threaten the safety of Katie, her child, or her child friend... So... Katie is Gemma's niece whose parents die in a car accident and she gets sent to live with Gemma and Gemma's like, awesome. I don't want to be a parent, but I have this robot who can be the perfect companion to Katie so that I don't have to take on that emotional load. I, I um, will also say that at one point, a, a caseworker is like, listen, her grandparents can take her instead because you clearly don't want to have a kid right now. And she's like, no, it's fine. I and, got it. I got her. So, yeah. Um, <laughs> Also, there's a lot happening here. Unlike David, Megan looks like she's going to be a murder bot from the instant she's turned on. (laughs) Oh, yeah. David, I mean, David is played by Haley Joel Osment and looks like a person. Megan is like 10 percent murder bot energy, you know, (laughs) (laughs) she is. She looks like an uncanny valley robot. Yeah. Which I, I think was a very smart move. Like, it's a little bit of Chucky, but also, like, Uncanny Valley is the exact right way to describe her, which I think is perfect for for the verisimilitude of, like, yeah, we can make robots that look really realistic, but not David realistic, you know, like here in the year 2023. And I think it is important to understand that the goals of Megan are different. She is created... She's not created to be a substitute for anything... In the business plan, like the business plan does not say adopt Megan as a replacement for your child. <laughs> right. Um, Although there, there is the bit in uh, um, uh, Alison Williams sort of like creates a, a pitch video that she wants the company to sort of use uh, Emily into in its business model um, that ends up not being used by the company. But in that in that video, it's basically like. Yeah, look, all the boring stuff of being a parent, Megan can do that instead. Uh, which, which was interesting. The idea of uh, AI is creating a substitute child. Megan is not officially creating a substitute parent, but many of the 
boring parts, quote-unquote boring parts of being a parent, are hopefully going to be pushed onto Megan. I also think it's important to just quickly define that the aims of these movies are different. Like, yes. Megan is a horror movie. AI is not. Yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> but the reason I wanted to talk about AI, or talk about Megan in conversation with AI is because the marketing for Megan, uh, once people... So there's a sequence where she does a TikTok dance in a hallway and then kills someone with a paper slicer, <laughs> which the internet found and was like, yes, I, this is our girl. Megan, <laughs> Megan did not work. It did not work as well for me as it did for you. But that scene, great scene. Absolutely. That was the one scene where I was like, I want to see the R-rated cut of this, <laughs> which you can watch on Peacock. Mm -hmm. um, but um, she instantly became a meme. And even though she is the villain of this movie, I think that she is marketed to be like, much like Chucky, like this is our new cinematic robot icon. We yeah. cannot help but stand, as the children say. Yeah. Um, which I think is a really interesting thing to think about in con in like the context of that fear that we were just talking about about how we are also afraid that robots are going to replace people there is also i think this impetus to assign human there's there's an urge to assign human values and a fear of what will happen if we do but because we are people and we cannot help but put a name on anything that looks like it has a face mm -hmm. this is sort of this is sort of the uh the sphere that we have trapped ourselves in yeah but backtracking just a little bit, please tell me what you thought of Megan, because I know that you watched it for the first time for this uh, this recording. I did. Um, I thought Allison Williams was great. Uh, I just never really vibed with it for reasons that I'm still kind of having a hard time dissecting. Part of it is uh, I bounced off the dialogue real hard. Um, it's it's very like we're using the language du jour of like therapy and trauma in all our conversations because, you know, where that's that's who these characters are and i get it but i bounced off it hard um and i i thought there were interesting ideas in there of like you know parenting what it means to be a parent what it means to be a parent when you don't want to be one um and and you know similar things of that nature like Allison Williams weirdly is more of a parent to Megan than she is to Katie uh, just because like you know she in, in a way like she created Megan um but I I don't know if it's just that like you know this might be the first Bloomhouse horror I've seen that probably isn't true but uh just playing the odds I'm sure that's not true but uh you know it, it's it's not a production company that I I jump towards and uh you know this this sort of underscore that of like it's i've never liked chucky it's not my genre at large this was very funny it looked great especially for having a tiny budget like 12 million dollars was the budget uh megan herself uh jenna day uh, no uh amy donald who was the body of megan absolutely like incredible performance um but but it was definitely a movie that where, like, as I'm sitting there, I'm like, I am just fully not, not vibing with this movie. I want to go back really quick to something that you said, because it was one of the things that stuck out to me 
this for me this was a four star movie i had so much fun with it <laughs> two and, I don't and a half think two and a half for that, me yeah i don't think anything that you said was wrong but i think that i also was just very much ready to be on this movie's wavelength right yeah yeah i i fully believe that um, if i was like clicked in i would have given this at least an extra star um so talking about the relationship between megan and gemma there megan has a line later in the movie that i was like hold on that should have been a 10 to 12 minute sequence <laughs> in this film when she's talking about the process of Gemma training Megan, which honestly is exactly how you train a neural network for these, uh, these AI tools. Like she mm -hmm. was feeding Megan huge amounts of data and, you know, helping develop these relationships and pathways to create like generative reactions that in and of itself is very reminiscent of a parent child relationship. But when, when Megan is talking to Gemma, she sounds like a spurned romantic partner and not an angry, mm -hmm. like a child angry with his parent. Yes. And I was like, I would have loved for this movie to be about 10 minutes longer and actually gotten to see that relationship, like see Gemma training Megan and spending that time with Megan. I think that would have given it a really interesting I um I, I will say when I context? hit context, yeah, when I hit play and saw it was an hour forty, I was like, "Yes, that's awesome." And I, oh, yeah. I don't no. want to have watched more of it, but I agree with you. <laughs> I think ten to twelve more minutes doing things like that, and a lot of the development between Megan and Katie, and even like the Megan, Katie, and Gemma like triangle, kind of happens through that fake promotional video that Gemma makes, which is which is very clever and good filmmaking. But it means that we're sort of like montage yada yadaing a really core emotional like moment. Well, and I think ultimately the movie is not super interested in plumbing that, even if you and I think it would have been interesting for it to do that. Right. The movie like, wants to get to really uh, what we're... wants to get to, to paper cutter uh, violence. Exactly. Yeah. Um, I want to very briefly, I don't know, I don't remember if we're backtracking or not at this point, but one of the things that you wrote in our notes document was the difference between, um, Megan being designed to take over a parental role and David being designed to take over a child role. Mm -hmm. And I mentioned to you off air that I wonder if part of that is, um, a difference in boomer filmmakers versus millennial filmmakers, mm -hmm. which I do not bring up to be um, condescending or reductive. Like I, I <laughs> feel like you're not okay. Boomering Steven Spielberg. <laughs> no, I'm truly not. Like <laughs> it, it, it goes back to that idea again of um, science fiction tropes being utilized to reflect the generational fears that they are being developed in. And we've had robots since the 1920s. And I think it's just really interesting that um, Spielberg and Kubrick uh, made a movie about overpopulation and uh, climate change. And um, Gerard Johnstone and Akila Cooper made a robot movie about um, the failures of absent parenting. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
and and also like you know over reliance on technology like the the initial toy from the the toy company it's like a furby but it's an app you know like it's so you're on the screen all the time Gemma is someone who is living in a fully ai'd house um which you know has will, will never be influenced like infiltrated by megan uh <laughs> uh but you know it's it's that an i, I, I think it's a house that designed yeah right um so i, I you know it's, it's partly absent parenting it's also partly like you know where are the par- where have the parents gone well they've outsourced it to technology um so you know where, whereas like you know in the 80s absent parenting was like latchkey kid kind of stuff now it's you know like I don't know, let the robot do it <laughs> let the let the ipad do it which i think is something that millennial parents get a lot of flack for uh yeah they are millennials <laughs> and parents which is the perfect venn diagram for getting flack for things entirely outside of their control <laughs> yeah, no kidding <laughs> They stopped feeding their kids avocados. Maybe their kids could buy a house as long as they started saving up right now. <laughs> no, they had to start saving up 20 years ago. Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> Generational wealth is where it's at, my man. <laughs> Which is why you can't um, feed your three-year-old avocados. So I'm not totally sure what conclusions I am drawing here with all of this. Well, I think it's you, your discussion about sort of us being afraid of robots, but at the same time, putting a nice smiling face on them is sort of what cracked, cracked the code of what you wanted to talk about in this episode for me. Um, And, and I think that is just like, I think that's just like the inherent tension of the human existence of like, we are creating things that are possibly beyond our control. And also, they kind of look like us, so we're going to treat them like people, even though they're fully not. Uh, well, and even though we are afraid of this developing an emergent technology, we're still going to make it. Oh, like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> clearly, the, the fear of being supplanted by robot overlords has never once stopped or inhibited progress in right. these fields <laughs> we've had a hundred years of stories about like hey if you make robots and abuse them they're gonna take over and what have we done in those hundred years made better robots and abused them i think we've just gotten more clever and creative in terms of in in the sense of like what the robots are capable of you know oh yeah well I think part of that is that as we make actual robotic tools that can do things, we have to imagine future robots that can do more things. Yeah, yeah. Which is one reason I really like the the robots at the end of AI looking so alien and so weird and having clear, like, wireless, ca- like, wireless electrical ability. Um, uh, all, looking all very weird, cool. but still humanoid. Still humanoid, yeah, yeah. Which I do think is important, because at the end of the day, they are still the progeny of the robots initially. And, and they're obsessed with ancient humanity, uh, mm-hmm. because they want to know their creators. I, I think we could have had a whole other conversation about, um, like, the role of creators and, you know, humanity's relationship with the divine through the lens of robots' relationship with humans. 
and you know what in 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 movies and whatnot and, and sort of that sort of grappling thing but i think that that's that's a conversation for an entirely other show because uh, that would yeah. set us spinning off in totally different directions i was gonna say let's let's put a pin in that <laughs> and just save that one for another day yeah perhaps yeah um any concluding remarks we were talking off air about Asimov and his Three Laws of Robotics, which comes up often in robot movies, but oddly does not come up in either of these movies. Uh, all I gotta say for Allison Williams or anyone else developing AI, hard code Asimov's Three Laws of Robotics into your robots, and then you won't have a murderous Megan bot. Guys, we've, this, this sci-fi has been around for 60 years. Just put it in the code. It's fine. I want to say that there is a moment, I don't know if they specifically refer to the laws of robotics in Megan, but there is definitely something in there about Megan subverting the things in her code that make her not be able to harm people. Hmm. 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 Like that, that is definitely, that is definitely a plot point. Like you... she figures out how to go around the security features that are supposedly built into her. Yeah, that's, that's a good point. And I, and, and I guess it is the thing where, like, when Asimov was writing the books, they're like, oh, yeah, you just hardwire this into robots. It's fine. But now that it's all AI, it's like, well, if the AI is writing its own code, it could theoretically rewrite this part of its code and therefore, you know, now, now become a murder bot. Exactly. Yeah, it's, it doesn't come up in um, AI. And I actually think it would have been kind of interesting to build that into AI, especially... Um, because of the scene where um, David accidentally pulls Martin into the pool when mm. the other kids are, like, bullying him and threatening him. Yeah. Yeah, there's there's definitely something in Megan about that. Um, because it's a big deal that Megan, like... Like, Megan's not supposed to be able to hurt uh, humans. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, yeah I, I think that's it for me. Yeah, I like I said, I don't have any widespread conclusions, except that I am always interested to learn more about humanity's relationship to robots through the movies that I watch. So, <laughs> you know, we'll see what comes next. Yeah. Let's Megan, all go watch Megan 2001 A Space Odyssey. Oh, I mean, don't, don't even tempt me. All right, I know what we're doing <laughs> next episode. We're talking 2001 A Space me. Odyssey. <laughs> okay, but... Okay, but you have to what's, come up with what's a... What's the topic? What's thesis? the theme? Yeah, the topic or theme is, guys... We're watching 2001 A Space Odyssey. <laughs> Barbie's coming out this summer. Use 2001 yes. as a touch point uh, in, the, in the first trailer. You know, we, we, we could get there. But anyway. <laughs> um, for now, this is where we leave you. Uh, you can find us um, wherever you find your podcasts. Um, you can also listen to our sister show, Love Ya, which I record with uh, Pete's wife, Marin, and releases on the same feed uh, on alternating release dates, where we look at uh, streaming adult rom-coms and teen cinema. Our most recent episode was about the Netflix original Hello, Goodbye, and Everything in Between, and our next episode is going to be about the Hulu original Rye Lane. I'm very excited about that. Um... You can find me on all the places at Magical Martha, uh, except for Tumblr, where I'm at the Libratrix, because I lost access to my original account. 
You can also find me on Letterboxd, where I rate and review uh, in a pithy tweet-length review uh, the movies that I watch, and also make lots and lots of ranked lists, because man, do I love a ranked list. Um, I have a tiny letter, tinyletter.com backslash Magical Martha that I update whenever I feel like it. I have not updated since the last time I told you guys that the last one I wrote was about who should host the Oscars. So, you know, keep your eye out for that. Uh, Pete, where can people find you? You can still find me on Twitter at Pico3000. That's P-I-K-O-3000. I keep saying I want to cut back and then, you know, I probably have cut back, but that's more a statement of how bad, how much I was on before versus now. Um, whatever. It's Twitter. Will it exist in a month? Who's to say? Uh, I'm also on Letterboxd. I did finally. Mm, yeah. Just real quick. I did finally decide what the factor would be that would get me to leave Twitter for good. Uh, um, I had a everyone dream. To pay money. I had, well, yes, but I had a very vivid dream where only people who paid for Twitter Blue were allowed to block accounts. <laughs> yep, yep, yep. So much so that I surprised, I surprised myself when I blocked an account the other day. I was like, oh, I thought I couldn't do that anymore. <laughs> um, but if that ever became a reality, I would stop using Twitter because well, the now only that way you've... that it. The only way it can function right now is my ability to block people I don't want to see. Now that you've manifested that into the world, get ready for the slapdash release in May of Twitter Blue blocking uh, brought to you by the same guy who uh, blew up a rocket 90 seconds into its launch. Uh, um, don't you mean uh, rapid... Oh, um, yes, 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 yes. Rapid, unplanned <laughs> disintegration or whatever it was. <laughs> yes. Uh, so that that was going around the internet literally a day after I performed a unplanned test of our fire alarms uh, as I was cooking something Hooray! in the kitchen. <laughs> <laughs> so that was that was fun. <laughs> um, Fantastic. Anyway, you can find me on Twitter at Pico3000. That's P-I-K-O-3000. And you can find me on Letterbox at P Romberg, P-R-H-O-M-B-E-R-G. I would like to say that my reviews are pithy and tweet length, and some of them are. Some of them are Rapid power. unscheduled disassembly. <laughs> ah, there FYI. we go. There we go. Um, yeah, some of my reviews are pithy and short, and some of my reviews are uh, possibly too many paragraphs, but there we go. So our next episode is coming out right before Memorial Day, and in honor of that, we're going to be looking at the old Francois Truffaut canard of there's no such thing as an anti-war movie by looking at two possibly supposedly anti-war war films. We're going to be looking at the new version of All Quiet on the Western Front. That's a 2022 version uh, available on Netflix. And we're also going to be looking at Francis Ford Coppola's Vietnam epic Apocalypse Now. So that's what we've got going on for next week. Is there such thing as an anti-war war movie? We'll find out. Uh, thank you, everybody. We will see you in a couple of weeks. Um, class dismissed. So anytime there was an extended silence in there, I was eating a chip. Ah, there we go. <laughs>